Thank you for the offering this evening. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible, if I may please, to the book of Exodus and back to chapter number 2 for just a moment. Uh, when I was in uh, school in uh, Bible college, we had, uh, we had a registrar, a guy who uh, pretty much overs- would oversee almost every aspect of the uh, school's uh, registration for students, but also uh, all the finances and everything. And uh, while I was there, uh, the man was Brother Lockery. You know, uh, he was a, a good, godly man in the church, and then he was also engaged as a registrar in the in the uh, school. And a good man, and uh, I appreciate being around him. Very humble fellow, very gracious, and so forth. Every once in a while, you'd get an announcement in the chapel that somebody needed to go see the registrar. And uh, the announcement was, you need to go in, and when you went in, you got uh, pretty much like you do at the... Um, BMV, where you go in and you get a number and you wait until they call your number. That's usually how it works. Well, anyway, when you would go in there, uh, this guy was so personal that he, if he saw you uh, and noticed that maybe the other people were not as in maybe a concern as you were, why you were at the registrar's office, why you'd been called in there, he'd actually come out and talk with you. Now, I, I never go. I never had to go there on my own, but I went there with a friend, and he came out and, and wanted to assure the friend that whatever he were there for, everything's going to be okay, you know, everything's calm, cool, collected, don't worry about it, don't be, don't be jittery. I guess he perceived it was nervousness about it, I don't know, but uh, oftentimes he gave this simple word of advice, he said, just go back and think about, if, have you fulfilled all the requirements in regard to what you were asked to do in regard to the registration of your school year? And he'd say, go back and think it through, and then if you have an issue, then you come back and we'll we'll take care of it. That's how it usually works. Well, tonight I'm going to be uh, like the registrar because I, I missed something that I intended to cover. And, in fact, I think I said I would cover it uh, in the early points of uh, Moses' life, and I didn't do it. And to be honest, I want to make sure I'm truthful with you. So let me take you back to uh, Exodus chapter number 2. And what I call your attention to is something that somebody uh, in the church made a reference to a few weeks ago. And uh, I'm thinking then, I don't think I covered that. I don't think I mentioned that as I intended to. But let me take you chapter number 2 and uh, look if you would. Uh, oh, look if you would at, uh, well, let's just begin chapter 2, verse 1. And there were, when a man of the house of Levi took a wife of the daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived to bear a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags of the river brink, and his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done uh, to him. And uh, remember, uh, this is uh, Moses was born in the midst of what chapter 1 told us about um, Pharaoh charged the midwives that when uh, a male child was born that they were to destroy the mid, the midwives were instructed to destroy the male children born to the Hebrew women. And when that didn't work, then uh, in verse number um Oh, verse 22 of chapter 1, the Pharaoh charged all of his people, uh, every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. What my point is in this context was that um, uh, Moses was born right in the middle of a, a crisis among the Hebrews. 
And that is to say that um, Pharaoh uh, was going to make sure they didn't multiply like he feared they would. And so he sets in order a plan. And the thing that's uh, uh, rather amazing about it is, as we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, was that uh, Moses' parents uh, feared the Lord more than they feared the Pharaoh. And so what that did was, uh, that's why they hid the child under their own care, and they did not allow him to be turned over to Pharaoh's people to destroy him. So the issue here is, and someone in the church brought this to my attention, is the issue that how far do you go when you have uh, a statement made like this of the Pharaoh, as in our case the king or the president, if the president were to issue, which is not likely, uh, an issue that he would want all the people over 75 years of age to be put to sleep permanently. The question is, was, would you think that our church family would comply with that? And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they said, well, if the president said it, you know, I could have said, well, the president says a lot of stuff that, you know, means nothing. But I couldn't say that if it were the law, it would be that easily looked away. Now, we would just say that the law violates what the Bible teaches, and that is the sanctity of life, whether it's a baby born from the womb and just born or one that's not even born yet, that the sanctity of life covers all of life. And so we're not just for certain people are protected. We believe the Bible protects all. So with that said, I said I would then bring a point of um, context to this whole point and say Moses' parents were God-fearing. They respected the Pharaoh on points whereby they did not affect their faith. If their faith made of one directive and Pharaoh violated that, I'm confident they would have ignored what the Pharaoh said. For instance, when uh, Pharaoh tells them that the people there are going to have to work harder later on, and they're going to have to go gather their own straw because he's not going to provide it as they evidently had in the past, uh, even though the Hebrews complained, they did not rebel. So no matter how hard the law might be, if it's not a violation of our faith, it behooves us, as Romans 13 would say, to accept them as a minister of God who are, quote, in the government. So in this case, I pointed out and made mention that's a very good case in the Scriptures. Let me show, show you this one, if you would. Uh, turn to the book of Acts. Look at chapter number 4. Uh, book of Acts, chapter 4, because Moses' uh, life, so to speak, um, starts out with this thing on the table, so to speak that his parents did not uh, disrespect the Pharaoh when it was matters that only pertained to you know, their life, or lifestyle, but when it pertained to uh, the health or the, the spiritual, physical well-being of the people and began to violate the sanctity of life, they began to have a problem. Look, if you would, in, uh, in chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, and, and really it covers the first, oh, probably would go through the first 21 verses. Uh, but let's just read a little to get the setting. Look at chapter 4, verse number 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus Christ, or Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them, 
and put them in hold or in jail until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and number of the men was about 5,000. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, um, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, the, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, and talking about the disciples in the first four verses of the text, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? The word power in the context means by what authority? Who gave you the right to do this? Verse number 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which the, was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. In verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, and this is a great statement, six words, but profound, they could say nothing against them. Uh, that bears out its own testimony. You can't, you can't speak against the obvious. And verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny, cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, and finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done, which in this case was the healing of the impotent man. So you have the big question is in verse number 7, and then you have uh, one of the answers in verse number 10, and then you have a sort of speak an application of it in verse number 12, and then you have a response in verses 17 and 18. Now, in verses 19 and 20, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We will, um, in other words, they said to this council which represented the authority, and we look at it as a representative of government, uh, they said, uh, we can't, we can't do what you ask us to do. Um, we will keep preaching and we will keep teaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's His name that gives us this authority. We do so in his name. And when we pray in Jesus' name, it's the same basic thing. We, we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying we're claiming his authority for our request. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Now, the Sanhedrin uh, did what state does, always does. They resort to raw, naked authority. 
the verse says, they said, don't do this anymore. And the Bible indicates they threatened them. Don't you do this again. Now, it sounds like a parent who, you know, a child has done something and a parent may not have that kind of, uh, have not trained their child enough where a parent's word is authority enough. So when they aren't, some parents sometimes will threaten a child with some loss of uh, privileges. You know, if you do that again, and how many times you've been at a store uh, and uh, hear a parent, no, they have no, their word has no power whatsoever. Their word has no authority whatsoever. Uh, we used to have kids who parents would call them in our parking lot after the service was over, and they paid no attention. <laughs> they just kept on going. Now, the fact the parent can stand there and say, on the authority that was been given to me, you get here. And the kid would just stand down there and laugh. He said, are you serious? Now, here's the deal. That's about the way it is with the John and Peter and the others who were caught in this issue. They just looked at the authority and said, now, you can judge whether or not we ought to obey you or not. But we have already made up our minds. We cannot but go out of here and keep preaching, keep teaching in the name or on the authority of what the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Now, what's interesting is they, they don't tend to quit there. If, if Peter and John had um, said, okay, fellas, whatever you say, you don't want us preaching on uh, this subject of the Lord Jesus Christ, or if they had been preaching on homosexuality and they said, okay, we will quit preaching about Jesus and we'll quit preaching against homosexuality as a sin, you see who would become their God? Who would become their God? The local authority would have. Who you bow to is your God. So you have to decide, do I bow to this authority because it conflicts with my faith? Uh, do I bow to them just because they are a, a government entity and have some legal authority on that basis? Can, and do they have the right to tell me that I cannot speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I can tell you right now that Christian Law Association is in business to make sure that no Christian is ever forced against his will to stop talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of their whole process of being in existence. You have a right to express your faith in America at this point. And it's exactly what was the case here. And um, these men, Peter and John, understood if they bowed to the state, then the state becomes their God. And they say, uh, you can think whatever you like and you can decide whether it's right or wrong, but for us, we know what we have to do. Um, it's interesting, too, that the state will at some point in some time demand that you and I do something or some things contrary to what's written in God's Word. It's at that point you must say what these men said. You must say, with all due respect, we cannot do that which violates God's Word and our conscience. It's either follow the Lord or follow the state. And you have to make up your mind that uh, you'll obey the state and you should obey the state in all of its rules and all of its laws as long as they do not violate the Word of God and the faith therein. I read of uh, years ago and kept it and, and I share it with you now. I read of four options that people are faced with with this issue. 
I think they're important, and I think they make a good point because uh, I've heard of all of them. That is, I've heard people function under all four of these particular options. Option number one is called the monastic. It's made from the uh, uh, the monks, the monastic option. And that is simply that God alone uh, and God independently of all other issues and authority is the authority to which you bend and bow. That's called the monastic option. Monks believe that the world about them, and including government, uh, which was over them, was corrupt. And some of the first monks and monasteries, they um, decided they could have nothing to do with government. And uh, so what did they do? Uh, they first started teaching and telling and sharing that the the government, the leadership was corrupt and that it was of the devil. And so consequently they taught that among themselves and they became so convinced of it that when family or friends, when there was occasion where the monks got to speak with family, they'd reiterate it to family. They told family members that the government was corrupt and it was devil's work. So what they did was they decided the only thing they could do is keep moving away from all authority. So they first of all, and one story has it, they went out into what we would call a wilderness, you know, out to a barren land. There was nothing there, and they decided they'd go out and they'd be, they'd sort of make this their camp, and they would live there. They'd be self-sufficient, and uh, they'd be unique in that. They'd have no government over them. It would be self-governed. So they did that. What was a fascinating uh, sideline to that was people in the communities where there was government heard about them out there, that they were a self-sufficient group of monks, and they had created this this monastic um, authority, and they wouldn't let anybody rule them or direct them. And people started going out on what we would now call tours to see them. They treated them like they were zoo animals. They would ride out and uh, in uh, some cases indicate they went in, in horse caravans and people would pay to get to go out and ride around this location where these villages were, where these monks were. And the whole idea was they were unique because they had, quote, no authority over them, or at least the monks said so. And what happened with that was they began to teach and tell everybody who would take a listen. Uh, they would explain to them. Now, they would explain very forthrightly to them, I might add, that uh, they weren't going to obey anybody. They were going to obey their God, and they weren't going to pay any attention to anything that changed that. So what happened when these people started showing up in these caravans, they decided they weren't far enough away from uh, civilization. So they moved again. This time they went into places where people couldn't get to. They built their uh, their monasteries in, in places where you'd have to cross canyons and, and rivers and climb sides of mountains, in some cases almost bluffs. In one case, an illustration of it, they had to carry the river rock three miles to get it up to where they perched it on the top of a hill, a mountain-like thing, and you couldn't get to it from any other location than the one they made. And when they got that thing done... They destroyed the, uh, the opening so you couldn't get up that way anymore. In other words, the people on top of that mountain in that monastery were now going to have to survive on their own because they couldn't get in, they couldn't get out. Nobody could come to them and nobody could get out of there. 
And they thought that they were actually winning the war about this. Then they went a step further than that because they thought, well, we've, we've sort of taken care of the problem that the outsiders can't come in and influence us and take away our rights as monks to believe what we believe and do what we believe and so forth. Then they begin to talk about the self-responsibility involved in it. That went on for a, a long period of time, and, and there is, a, I think, probably one of the most famous of the monks is a man by the name of Simon Stylitus. Simon Stylitus, and if you've heard about him, you, uh, you know how unusual this thing is, is that he believed that they needed to um, show uh, dedication to their God above all authority and not pay any attention to what people would tell them, and even if people were trying to advise them to be safe and protected and keep them healthy and well, they wouldn't pay any attention to that. They, they did everything independently of any outside influences. So this guy, Simon, he built a tower. In fact, I believe the tower was, it was, the tower was 70 foot tall. In fact, it was more of a pillar. It was a pillar, 70 foot tall, and he never came down for 30 years. Come rain, snow, sleet, wind. He got on the top of this 30-foot pillar and stayed there for 30 years. The other monks would take care of his needs by bringing him up and down in a, in a container and taking away the waste and so forth. All of it was done so this guy could be independent of all influences even on the monks as a group, so nobody could tell them what they could believe or do or act. Then it became personal, and this guy was sort of the hero and the first guy to try the whole deal of independent individualism. And so what happened was, uh, contrary to the view in, uh, in the Bible concerning us bowing down to the things the state tells us we must do, which in case is legitimate authority, if it does not violate what the Bible says. And by the way, uh, even Jesus Christ acknowledged the fact of the state's legitimacy. Uh, you can hold your place here in Acts, but look over from there back to John's Gospel. Look at chapter number 19. And you might hold your place there for a few minutes because there's a couple of other illustrations in John 19. John 19 in verses 10 said, Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? That's when Jesus, you know, didn't talk to him, didn't speak with him. He said, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and to have power to release thee? That's the state's rights. Verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. You notice in that, and I think the Greek language probably makes it a little clearer, that Jesus is not arguing the point that you can get me crucified. That's not the point. You have that authority, you're, you're in charge, and it's under the law, and you can do that. But you wouldn't have that if it were not from my heavenly Father who's given you that right as a state right and as a right that he has ordained as being a functioning government. So there is a right to functioning government that the Christian is supposed to bow to, and I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is testifying to that even as it has to do with his own death because the Roman law said it could be done. And it was the Jews who wanted the Romans to do it under their law because uh, they really couldn't do what they wanted done to the Lord Jesus in regard to abuse. So legitimate authority answers to God. The government has to answer to God. We answer to the legitimate government. 
And we do so as long as it does not violate what the Bible says. That's called, in this case, monastic opinion and position is they don't ever answer to anybody else, just God. Well, we can't do that. We have uh, we believe the Bible teaches otherwise. But look, the second thing is called a secular option, and that is that the state alone uh, is with the authority of God totally denied. That is to say that um, many places in the world have this idea that God's influence when Christians in the communities in which they oversee and what have you have no rights whatsoever. It's all states' rights. And whatever the state says, you do. Even if it says, uh, bring in your Bibles, you cannot carry your Bible during the week, you bring it by our place, our post, and then we'll give it back to you on the weekends. Yeah, there is a place on earth where that happens. They call in all the Bibles and you have to return them so they can do the worship on the weekends. Who says that? Local government says that. And so they did that. People didn't know any better. They just they just did what the state said. And, of course, in the laws of that little place, it may well have been that that was... Uh, uh, un, you know, indefensible position, but nobody there to stand up for them, and so they obeyed that. That's called a secular option, and this is a one that almost is um, in our country uh, because a, a bad interpretation of the separation of church and state lends itself to this position. And uh, I say to you that um, separation of church and state has sealed this idea, this bad interpretation has, to the point in the minds of the liberals that they think we're crazy when we talk about that's not what Jefferson meant when he wrote what he did in that letter. The state is king, according to this, and God is to be quiet. That's the position this one holds to. It's called It's called a, a very simpler secular option there is what's called a cowardly option though the cowardly option is that the authority of both god and the state with the state having the dominant role that's the cowardly option um option of cowards is what they used to call it and let me take you back to john 19 look at john chapter 19 again and john chapter 19 and uh, again down to verse Oh, look at uh, the verse that we just read a moment ago, but down further. Look at um, uh, verses uh, uh, verse 10. Pilate says to Jesus, Speakest thou not unto me, knowest thou not that I have power or authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, and you couldn't have it unless it was given to you uh, from above, from his Father. And then verse 12, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Now, Caesar is the state in this case. Caesar is the top dog in Rome. And here you have Pilate saying in verse 12 that from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, that is, to let Jesus go without crucifixion. But the people raised the issue of the state and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't let him go because if you do, you'll be no friend of the state who is represented by Caesar in this context. So Pilate did not want the Jews to cause an uprising because if they caused an uprising and Caesar had to send somebody out to calm the storm, uh, Pilate would lose his position. He'd lose his governorship. And uh, he knew better. He did not want an uprising. So the whole thing going to bow down to a thing of coward. 
it was right that he let Jesus go because there was no proof against the Lord Jesus doing anything under Roman law. But the Hebrews, the Jews, wanted him crucified because they accused him of blasphemy. Roman law had nothing to do with blasphemy. They didn't care what you said as long as you didn't blaspheme the government or the, the state, as in the case with Caesar. You better say Caesar is Lord, but uh, they couldn't get you for blasphemy if you said something bad about the Lord Jesus Christ. That wasn't on the Roman law agenda. But in this particular case, it is a matter that Pilate very quickly sees I can't, I can't just ignore what these people are saying. All it'll take is one person getting back to Caesar and telling him that I let Jesus go, who was saying that he was a king, and that's going to look like I'm letting this king go, where we already have a king in Caesar, and that's going to really look bad. We can't have this happen. We have, we need to work this thing out. So Pilate did not want the Jews to cause a problem. He did not want to lose his position. So Pilate feared for his job, even though he seemingly, heart-wise, knew that Jesus Christ was not worthy to die. That's called the coward option. When something that the state requires you know is wrong, but you don't have enough conviction to stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not right. You, you see, I, I don't know a lot about Mike. Brother Mike would have to tell us what the details would be. But it has never made any sense to me on a, on a local level uh, as a, a property owner to tell me that they're going to cap the taxes. And then what they do, they come to my house and they raise my assessment so they can raise my taxes. Now, there's only one problem with that. Um, property worth did not go up to the same percentage that the taxes went up. For instance, I didn't do a build-on on my house. I didn't do a remodel. I didn't change anything inside and out. I didn't mow my grass any quicker any more often. I didn't make it look any better. My house is the same house it was. Now, I understand it could go up by just property values in the community. However, there are folks in our community made add-ons and remodels and, and changed landscape. I have a neighbor who probably did, a, I'd say right now he's up to about $110,000 of landscaping. Most of it bringing in all kinds of river rock. Beautiful, beautiful work, beautiful work. These folks did a wonderful job. $110,000 has been estimated that cost. Now look, somebody told me his taxes didn't even go up. And he added $110,000. Obviously, state doesn't do things always right. And if you think they do, let me explain to you some things. We need to get together. Let me bring you up to date. It's just that it's accepted, the fact, that they do dumb things. But you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can never fool all the people all the time. And fooling them to make them believe they got a tax cap where they can't be taxed anymore is one of the tricks of the trade, it appears. Now, that doesn't give people a real confidence in government. People need to know that government is honest and straightforward and fair and legal. In the case with Lord Jesus Christ, he never argues against the fact of government having a right to operate and function and behave themselves. He just talks about, in the context of these, making sure that you don't step across the line. And stepping across the line is the last of the options. So you have the monastic, you have the position that's taken called secular option, then you have this cowardly option that Pilate followed, and the last one is you have a biblical option. 
There is God and the state, both with God in the ultimate dominant position. That means that the state should never do anything that violates what the Bible teaches us. Now, we're not in a state of dominion. That is, the, the Bible is not followed as a guidebook to keep our society as to what it should, what we would normally refer to as a secure society. That's, that's not going to happen. So the Bible is not a book that's laid out in government to be followed. They just don't do that. But the fact of the matter is, we are commanded to follow the state's orders and laws as long as they do not violate what this book says to us. And I'm talking about in cases of telling us that we can't speak in Christ's name or, or telling us that we have to endorse homosexuality or we have to endorse killing babies uh, all of these things which at one time or the other becomes the law of the land, uh, uh, I say to you that it is an important point that we understand that the state is a part of the world. And that's important, and I'll show you how. First off, the world has this way um, of getting people to get on board with their position, and the state then comes along and sees this group of people who are raising such a ruckus about this particular issue, and let's take homosexuality, case in point. And what happens is if enough people raise enough voice and make enough marches on the state house and, and in Washington, D.C., and whatever else have you, then the state takes attention to that, and the state begins to work toward resolving this issue. So uh, to the states, uh, the influences that are exerted, depending on how much and how far it goes and whatever have you, then it becomes a matter that, as in the state of Indiana, uh, we accept gay marriages, where you have a man-to-man marrying, a woman and a woman marrying, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, I don't know whether you saw it. Somebody put it on uh, Facebook. My wife showed it to me. I think it's classic, and I think it's absolutely what you and I ought to hang, stand on, and not move an inch off of is the answer that John MacArthur gave a few weeks ago, or at least recorded a few weeks ago, about when he was on a panel and they asked him about homosexuals. And he referred to them as a gay. And they said um, something to the effects about uh, what he thought about gays, gay marriages, and so forth. And he said, in effect, and this is not a quote, this is a general idea, oh, you can find it if you get on the internet. It simply says there are no gay people. And, of course, that knocked them all out of the seats. He said none of these people are that way by their birth, as we've all known that. But he said this in a panel where it has just gone like a a house of fire. And people have said, what? What? The reason they're surprised is because the state took it and ran with it as if this was the absolute scientific fact. And people accepted it because the state said it. They don't understand. They've been hoodwinked. There's no case of anybody being born gay. And there's no case of the Bible setting up in any sense anything good said about gay relationships or homosexuality. It's an abomination to God. And yet because our country and a group of people in our country who happened to be and had happened to make a choice to have a same-sex relationship, and that's all it is, they made a choice to have a same-sex relationship just like, as John MacArthur said, a guy decides he's going to rob a bank. 
And he made a choice. And as he makes this choice to rob this bank, he's now called a robber. And I suspect if, uh, if you got enough robbers to decide in America that we're robbers and, and we want you to make us a special class, I guess it would work. Because state pays big attention to who's going to vote for us and how much bashing you can do to this group of people and get away with it. Because that's the big deal now. It's the sympathy that's cast upon circumstances. And what we need to do is we need to get away from this. There is no sympathy to be given to people who violate what the Bible says. Period. And when we get to a point where we give sympathy to that, we do the same thing the world does. We are endorsing something that God condemns. And we're doing it. Eventually, our attitude toward it will make government make a decision about endorsing it and saying, okay, I guess we, we better go with, with same-sex marriage. And so we've done it. But it basically because Christian people and the general public didn't know any better. They just thought it was scientific. Yep, government says it. Government must be right about this. Government oftentimes is dead wrong. Often. Why? Because it's made up of pagans. Generally speaking, it's made up of pagans. Oh, yes, there's a Christian here and a Christian there and a Christian over there and one down here. But they, they, they don't act like they have to answer to God. And yet they do. They have to answer to God. Romans 13 is not just thrown into Romans just because they needed a chapter to fill in the text. It's God saying, I ordained that there be government. I ordained there be government. I ordained there be government. So what they tell you? It tells government has to answer to God. And if government doesn't answer to God, there will be something to pay. You can bank on it. So our problem is in our country, we allow the world to get this snowball rolling down this hill and it, as it goes, it picks up momentum, and it also picks up debris and everything else beside the snow. And by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, it's a big old thing. It's like the elephant in the room. You can't ignore it. And so government approves it. So, okay, I, I, I guess we need to approve this. this. This will be the thing. So I would say to you, don't be surprised in the next years that we take this thing a step further. It's not only going to be that gay marriages are going to be on the table and accepted and passes the law of the land, which it has, has become. It's going to go beyond that. It's going to be to a thing where they're going to demand that every institution under authority of the United States government approve of them. They don't want just to get the privileges of marriage. They want the approval of every institution on the face of this earth. And it won't just be homosexuals getting married and so forth. But the big thing is this. God's people need to know where they stand and what the Bible says, not, not what the world says. The world's out to change our position and ultimately throw the Bible out and say it has no authority and it's old school and et cetera, et cetera. And we say, oh, no, 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 no. God ordained government. And government will answer to God someday. One day, someday, and I wouldn't want to be a part of something that has always been working against what God would have been done, especially when it goes contrary to what the Bible says. So this point of um, what Moses' parents did in the, the Old Testament is quite an amazing thing. They didn't have people like 
Christian Law Association, and they didn't have uh, uh, Sekolo and other lawyers who stood up for American Christians and for their rights, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I say to you, it's quite amazing that they had none of that in Exodus chapter number 1 and chapter number 2 when Moses was born, and yet they stood up against the king. I mean, stood up against him and say, we ain't going along with this. We're not going to surrender our son to be killed. You, you can pitch all the Pharaoh fits you want to, but you're not going to have our son. And I personally believe that's where the providence of God stepped in so determinately. The providence of God worked on every facet of Moses' life, I believe, in response to his parents' faith. And I believe that's what happened in the early establishment of our country when we had people, men and women, who stood up for what the Bible teaches and they stepped out by faith to claim that thing and stand on that thing and not waver on that thing. I believe God undertook for our country and gave us what we have. And I believe it has become a thing whereby we stand a chance of losing it. And I mean losing it in a way that what liberties we have may be taken away because we tend now to be so liberal-minded and fearful to stand against anything that might offend somebody. I, I just uh, I can't get over uh, watching some people tiptoe around the issue of homosexuality who five years ago stood against it. I'm shocked. They've surrendered. I read a report last week that in the last two years, 3,000, 3,000 churches in the United States of America have written into their covenants of faith or their constitutions and statements of faith and so forth, have written into an endorsement of homosexuality. Churches. Churches. I, I, I'm flabbergasted. Right here in our own city, there's just been such a push to get everybody to love all the homosexuals and to love the sin, the partnership of marriage and homosexuality. And yet, God didn't stutter and He hasn't stumbled and He hasn't been silent. His Word is crystal clear. It is an abomination to the Lord. And it just becomes a matter that our society sort of tones us down. It changes us because you get on the news and if you said something bad about homosexuals it'd be like ugly on a duck. They'd not wrap your house in toilet paper. They would tear the siding off your house. I mean it's quite obvious that uh, we don't hear much about uh, homosexuals and and uh, their reprisals when they hear somebody talking about them negatively. Uh, we don't get to hear all that but we hear some. And there have been people whose homes have been stoned, stoned. I mean, rocks thrown through the windows with little notes attached to them. And I dare you to speak against our homosexual brothers and sisters, you know. I'm telling you that the Bible makes it very clear that God established government, and he wants us to obey government as long as it does not violate what the Bible says or the authority of our faith for which we stand. All authority that has been given to someone or some group of people is from God. All government, all individuals who have authority, it's been given to them on the basis of God's choosing. And it's important that they not misuse it or abuse it. 
Therefore, those who hold authority are responsible and accountable to God, who is the ultimate authority of all that. And I remind you that in Acts chapter 5, next chapter over from chapter 4 and chapter 5, it was his apostles, and um, they made it very clear. They said we ought to obey God rather than man. Believers belong to the kingdom of God, and it has never and will never pass away. It is eternal. The United States of America, our beloved country, will pass away. And God does not invest himself in the totality of things that are not going to last forever. He, he starts them and moves them, and if, if people ignore it, if they rebel against him, if they stop and try to stop what he's trying to do, then he lets it go to his desired end, and that is it usually burns up and is out of existence. Our country is not going to always be here, but the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God will be. And now I say to you that uh, question then on the table is, what kingdom do you belong to? Are you sure of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And where is your ultimate allegiance? Is it to the state or to the king of kings and the Lord of lords? While we are here, we obey its laws. We pay our taxes but only as they do not come in direct conflict with what our Lord God has said in his word. When that happens, we draw a line and say, I can't do that. And it ought to be, and it has to be, and it must be, that it would be a matter of conviction, not a preference, but a conviction, because uh, pressure will get too great, too quick, and it will be easy to abandon all of it. So what has to happen is you have to come to a point of conviction of where you're going to stand when there's not much room to stand on because government has required it all to be backed in a corner and this is all you got. And what are you going to do when there's nowhere to turn? What are you going to do when they tell you you can't even go to church if they said such a thing? Would you go to church anyway? Or would you do like foreign countries have done? Would you go underground? Would you have a, uh, an arrangement where you have an assembly of people where you still meet every single week? Or would you fear the authorities? Will you get to a point where you'll never speak against Muslims, their faith, and it being wrong and unbiblical? Would you ever get there? Or would you rather be cowardly and say, everybody's okay. You know, hey, let people believe what they want to. That's not being the light of the world. And I'm not purporting and suggesting that you go out in the community and start a, a, a war over doctrine or that. That's not the point. The point is when it faces you and it's pressing your faith, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to stand ground or are you going to stand down? Are you going to sit down and be appreciated or are you going to stand up and be counted and say, no, uh, this isn't right and I'm not going along with this? I say to you that in the case with Moses and his family, uh, when you get to heaven, you ought to look them up, and you ought to say to them, it's amazing to us that you, at the very beginning, when there were no lawyers to assist and help and, and encourage, that you had the courage from the Lord to stand up and fear the Lord more than you feared the king. And for that reason, you gave us one of the greatest men that have ever graced the sands of this earth in the man Moses. 
And it's interesting that the law of the Old Testament, we call it Moses' law. It was God's law that he gave to Moses, but Moses knew where it came from, and Moses spoke with the authority that it was God's. And I say to you that it's too bad our government, our president of the United States, doesn't understand that our law is God's law. Oh, they've got some bad laws in it, but we don't get to choose and pick which one we think are good and bad and, and just what. We just check carefully, do they violate my conscience of what the Bible teaches me and what the Bible says as an authority? As long as it doesn't do that, no matter how bad the law is, your responsibility in mind is to bow to it. You don't have to like it. It doesn't suggest that. It just says we have to obey it. And I say to you that in the case with life or death matters, as in the case with Moses' life being snuffed out because the Pharaoh said, I don't want this group of Hebrews to multiply to a point where they could turn against us and win a war against us. We don't want that to happen. So here's how we do it. We kill all the boys. Well, the moment they stepped on that line, uh, every conscious Christian ought to have stood up and said, we ain't going there. It's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. That, to me, would have been an exciting point for the Hebrews to fight the Egyptians on their own soil rather than to let their sons die at the hand of a Pharaoh. So the fact is, God undertook in one of their lives, and the life of um, Moses' parents, and they made a decision that has changed a lot of people's lives. They set an example for us. Just because the Pharaoh says something, just because the king says something, doesn't mean that God's approved it. And if God doesn't approve it, we don't obey it. You make sure that you judge properly. Don't be a rebel. Don't come across as a rebel. Don't have any sense of fighting against government that's legitimate and as covering and trying to do the right thing. Stand with it. Pray for it. And when you do that, then the Lord honors your faithfulness even as it was in the time when Nero was alive and Paul never said a single word against him. He preached and taught things that we would understand that he didn't like what he was doing, but he never mentioned him. He never let Nero be his subject. He let the right and the wrong of life be the issue, and we should do the same thing. I hope you'll think about it because as the question was raised within our own fellowship, obviously people have questions about that kind of thing. How far do you go in submission? And how far do you go in standing for or against something that violates the Bible? I hope you'll take these things to heart, and I hope that it'll help you to be ready to make a decision. And I would uh, say to you there'd be a wise move on your part to think through scenarios that might come about where you'd have to make that judgment sooner than later. If you wait till the hour arrives before you make up your mind where you stand, it's most likely you'll bend and bow rather than stand. So may God give you the same grit and the same grace that he gave um, Moses' parents. And even if you have to stand alone, stand. Stand. And may God be glorified in it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And Father, we are grateful this evening as we come to close the service without our music. I pray that you'll help us to take this thought home with us and help us to consider our own hearts. Where we are on these issues of where state and government tries to impose upon us something that's a standard against which the scriptures are clear. And in which there's no debate among God-fearing people. 
of what we should stand for and what we should stand against. I pray tonight that you'll give all the people of the New Life Baptist Church family a stiff backbone of conviction and the realization as the apostles of the early church who said and stated it and then lived to die and tell about it as they tell to those who were in authority that they would choose to obey God rather than men. When man's words, whether it be in the words of the law or whether it just be opinions, go against what the scriptures teach, help us to be very alert. So it requires of us that we know the word, that we know the scriptures, and we study them and understand them and have gone through that process of seeking guidance and direction on what they mean when they say what they do. So help us to understand them and help us not to make uh, false claims against government when they're not there and when the issues are not something to which we have a right to disobey. Help us to make sure of that because we too have to bow to the government that God gave. And I pray, therefore, that you'll help us to be responsible citizens of the United States of America and our state of Indiana. I pray you'll help us to pray for those in authority as they make the laws. Help them to be wise and help them, Father, not to be, uh, in any sense of the word, just politicians. Help them to be men, Father, who love our country, our state of Indiana, and our country of the United States of America, and do what they do to help our country and our county and our state be better. I pray you'd help us to have people who care about your will being projected and propelled into society's life. And I pray, Father, as it is, our country, our state will be better. So I pray you'll help us to have good men, God-fearing men. And I pray that you'd use them then to help our whole society to hear and know the truth that could set them free. So use us as Bible-believing people and individuals who have a voice. Help us to use our voice to set the record straight of our fears of the Lord and not the fear of man. And I do thank you again for Moses' parents. I thank you for the position they took, the stand they took, conviction they reflected in what they did and how they did it. And I thank you, Father, for your great providence that you worked out in Moses' life. And as it propels us to what you have for him, to use him in the days and years to come, It'll be all of it based upon what happened here with the faith of his father and mother. So I pray you help us to have good godly parents in our homes that they may establish a faith in the lives of our children. And Father, in so doing, may help our young people to take a stand for Christ when they too are challenged. So I pray for your help in all these areas and help us to honor and glorify you in it. Bless as we go now. Give safety and protection. Give our people.